I'm Megan Rissmiller, a partner in our antitrust practice based in Washington, and your host for this episode of Freshfield's Essential Antitrust Podcast. This is the first in our two-part series covering the regulatory landscape in innovation-driven industries. The level of fundings we see in innovation-heavy industries such as tech and life sciences continue to grow year on year. At the same time, these industries remain top of antitrust authorities' enforcement agendas. In this episode, we focus specifically on regulatory considerations in licensing, collaboration, and option deals, a preferred deal structure and route to finance in tech and life sciences deals. We look at deal structuring, the potential need for regulatory approvals, and specific deal terms to keep an eye on. Our next episode will be a deep dive into data-specific considerations in relation to antitrust and data privacy, which is increasingly a driver in tech and life sciences deals and strategic ventures. So for today, I'm joined by three colleagues. Tona Oyen, a partner in our antitrust practice who is based in Brussels. Hey, Megan. Jenny Leahy, senior associate in our antitrust practice who's based in London. Hey, Megan. And finally, we have Christian Riemann-Schneider, a partner in our global transactions team who is based in Washington. Hey, everyone. So to set the scene, Kristen, is it actually the case that you see these types of deal structures more often in tech and life sciences? Yeah, it's definitely true. Um, I think licensing collaborations are as common of a deal structure in tech and certainly life sciences as a traditional M&A deal, an acquisition of a product or a, a company. Um, the reason, perhaps, for these being such a common deal structure is that um, these agreements are designed to enable two parties to come together and share skill sets. So I specialize in the biopharmaceutical industry. You often see a smaller biotech company that has significant expertise in developing novel products, but maybe doesn't have the expertise in bringing them to market. So then they partner with a big pharmaceutical company, and that big pharma company usually has a marketing and sales arm and is able to commercialize a product. And so to share the risk on this asset, the parties will collaborate for a period of 10, sometimes 20 years to bring this product through the entire development and commercialization cycle. So the deals are very interesting. They typically involve an exclusive license to intellectual property. And because there's an exclusive license involved, it can be a reportable transaction under the Hart-Scott-Rodino Act and other antitrust reporting acts across the world. And in fact, you can have multiple filing requirements because as technology has evolved and we have a lot more platform deals um, where, you know, mRNA is a great example. You have this mRNA platform that can be used for a wide variety of products. You may have multiple exclusive licenses going into effect at different times. So in any event, um, like I said, these deals are often in effect for 10 to 20 years, which is different from your typical M&A transaction that sort of signs and closes within some period of time and then the companies walk away. And in order for the parties to work together effectively over this 10 to 20 year period, they typically put in place governance structures, things like different committees and working groups and different information sharing requirements. And all of those very common aspects of the transaction can really impact the antitrust analysis, both at the beginning of the deal, the signing, the potential closing, 
but also, like I said, when the, um, when the exclusive licenses go into effect as one or other of the parties acquires new products. So they're very, very interesting transactions. They're, I find them super fascinating. Well, they sound really interesting, of course, from uh, an antitrust perspective. And those of us who are the regulatory specialists on this call, you know, the types of companies you mentioned who are engaging in these types of deals, biotechs, emerging tech players, and other startups, those are certainly the exact type of companies that agencies on both sides of the Atlantic are really focused on. Before we delve into specifics, is it worth maybe spending a minute on the bigger picture? You know, what is motivating regulators here for being interested in these kinds of transactions? And, you know, to the extent that there really is a high rate of innovation, doesn't that suggest that these markets are, in fact, highly competitive? Jenny, do you want to take that one? Yeah, Megan, I think it's a really interesting point. And I think it is worth looking at the bigger picture here, because I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is, you know, for these industries, it's a perfect storm of policy and politics. And in the last years, we've seen increasingly the mixing of antitrust and other policy objectives. And that's had a real impact, especially on dealmakers in innovative sectors. So for me, you know, looking at the UK, for example, the UK Competition Authority um, conducted a retrospective review of its merger cases, as did the European Commission. And they identified a number of areas where they perceived it to be under enforcement. And that was especially the case in dynamic and innovation-driven markets. So now really what we're seeing is effectively a move to try and correct this perceived under enforcement. We've also seen in the UK the CMA issue new guidance, which sets a very low legal and evidentiary bar to find concerns in these types of industries. And then at the same time, globally, and again, also within the UK, we see that politics generally are becoming much more protectionist. And so we see this here, for example, through the introduction of the National Security and Investment Regime, which now can capture a range of minority investments. It can capture option deals when they come into effect. It can also capture pure licensing and IP deals uh, and a bunch of other investment models that Kristen mentioned at the outset. I think it's fair to say, uh, Jenny, that in the EU, we see the same trend. I think just focusing on, on the M&A side for a moment, I think the, the intervention rate in M&A deals, that is where an agency either imposes remedies or prohibits a transaction in the life sciences sector, has been four times higher in the last five years than uh, the intervention rate across all industries, which is an interesting point. It's also worth recalling, I think, that the EU uh, is increasingly trying to catch deals, even where a target company still has to start generating meaningful revenue in Europe. The Illumina Grail transaction, which I think we've talked about on prior podcasts, was called in by the European Commission under the uh, so-called Article 22 policy. And this is a prime example, and I'd say a clear warning shot from the European Commission. When we look beyond M&A, the Commission, the European Commission, is, is also very focused at the moment on investigating commercial practices in the tech and life sciences space in particular. For example, there have been recently a number of investigations into pricing models, data usage, and abuses relating to the misuse of patent proceedings. That is an important risk area to diligence as an investor or a collaboration partner. And finally, I think it's worth calling out that we also see more frequent and far-reaching enforcement by the national competition authorities in the EU member states. So in addition, and very often in parallel to the European Commission, 
National agencies are scrutinizing pricing practices, distribution models, and other types of contractual provisions. And certainly the trends really continue in the U.S. as well. President Biden's executive order on promoting competition in the American economy signaled a focus on antitrust enforcement in the healthcare and tech sectors as well. And certainly the tech sector remains subject to hearings, investigations, proposed legislation, other areas that relate to the FTC's actions, so things like withdrawal of the vertical merger guidelines and, and the process to revise the DOJ FTC horizontal merger guidelines to account for aspects of competition, you know, changing sort of the existing guidelines. I think all of that signals a heightened regulatory landscape for, for companies in life sciences particularly. So, you know, I think what we're saying here is really that the regulatory landscape is, is becoming harder, but today's focus is specifically on licensing and collaboration agreements. So what do parties really need to think about when entering into these types of agreements? Jenny? Yeah, Megan, I think I'd like to pick up on a really important point that Kristen touched on earlier, which is that in these types of deal structures in particular, regulatory complexity and filing requirements, they can come in waves throughout the life cycle of the the agreement and the project. And that's a very important point for parties to keep an eye on. So really, the first step would be to proactively try and spot filing risk, both at the time of entering into the agreement, but also trying to plan ahead for regulatory filing obligations and risk that is coming down the line. And so there are a few points to pick up here. I think, first of all, as Kristen touched upon, there are different parts of an agreement or an arrangement that can be notifiable at different times. So a milestone payment upfront could be notifiable at the point of signing, but then there are other factors or new licensing or new IP arrangement that, that come into effect later that can then trigger further obligations. The different requirements can also come in at different times because there are different thresholds for what triggers a filing in different jurisdictions. So, for example, in the UK, but also in other European jurisdictions like Germany and Austria, we have very low control thresholds. And so they are far below what you would see, for example, at European Commission level. So, again, this could trigger effectively a wave of filing requirements throughout the lifetime. Beyond antitrust, it's worth thinking about foreign investment filings. Again, they can be captured at quite low minority stake acquisitions. And these days, they increasingly capture IP arrangements uh, in sensitive sectors like sensitive technology or um, sensitive assets in the life sciences space. It's the same in the U.S., where the filing requirement for these types of collaboration agreements can depend on a nuanced assessment of the triggers and the scope of what is being transferred. These determinations can have a potentially meaningful impact on deal timetables. By way of example, under the U.S. HSR rules, the commercial terms of the agreement can impact the need for a filing. So, for instance, exclusive licenses can be reportable where transaction value-based thresholds are met. However, Co-exclusive licenses, depending on what they actually entail, can be exempt from a filing requirement. Another example is that of significant milestone payments, like the ones you mentioned, Kristen. They can also trigger filings depending on their value. Yeah, agreed, Megan. And I think we should also bear in mind that there can still be antitrust risk and complexity to navigate, even where a collaboration agreement does not trigger any mandatory merger filings. And in fact, the analysis can be often more complex in situations where you have established that merger filings are not required, because in, in this case, in this situation, you will need to assess 
basically a living agreement on the basis of the, the generally applicable antitrust rules. And you don't have the benefit of a merger clearance decision, which approves the impact of your agreement. Now, when you analyze a collaboration agreement under the general antitrust principles, I think it's important to underline that close attention needs to be paid to whether the parties are or could become actual or potential competitors during the collaborative venture. In this context, I think it's worth highlighting that whilst the European Commission recognizes the benefits of R&D agreements and collaborations in its guidance, especially when there is a pro-competitive goal that the parties wouldn't be able to achieve independently, these benefits must be clearly analyzed, they must be clearly understood and importantly articulated in the deal rationale, uh, but also the ordinary course business documents, and they should be made clear in the ongoing relationship between the parties. One really interesting challenge about all of this, and certainly in the 15 years that I've been practicing, when I first started in the life sciences industry, typically these license and collaboration deals were for a single product. And so you could say, I have a single product that we're testing for non-small cell lung cancer. And it was quite straightforward to analyze whether the parties were or were not competitors, because either they have a non-small cell lung cancer drug or they don't. And in the last 15 years, these deals have really shifted to these sort of platform deals where I have a technology like mRNA or AAV or some other platform that can be used for a wide variety of drugs. And the deals are much earlier in the process. So we see a lot of these license and collaboration deals in the preclinical stages where you have yet to identify what you might be targeting, what disease you might be targeting, what gene you might be targeting. And so it's really challenging at the outset of the deal to identify who your competitors might be. And to Jenny's point as well, you know, a lot of these deals are characterized as option deals. So you might have a relatively small upfront fee where a filing is not necessitated either because you don't have the exclusive license yet or just the fee is really low. But then on exercise of an option, all of a sudden that's when the transaction becomes reportable. And so it really, we, it cannot be overstated that you have to watch these deals over the lifetime of the deal to figure out, you know, is the antitrust landscape changing? Some of the common things that we look for over that lifetime, has the licensee acquired a product or divested a product? Could something in their product portfolio have changed that makes them a competitor where they weren't before? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. And just picking up on, on the point you make about contractual provisions which prevent collaboration partners from developing competing products, I think it's probably obvious, but these type of non-competes in agreements will very often be in the focus of a regulatory investigation when there is such an investigation. And it's therefore of critical importance that non-competes in these types of agreements are carefully analyzed, carefully drafted, to ensure that they are permissible, both from a geographic and a temporal point of view. Uh, this may sound actually more straightforward than, than it is. Defining a non-compete can be hard, in particular where a product or a technology does not yet exist. And in that case, you have to ask yourself, what would likely compete with this asset or with this product in the future? Importantly, EU law says that the parties have to find the least restrictive measures required to obtain the objective of their collaboration, whether that's in joint research, uh, joint commercialization, uh, or what have you. 
And if this requirement isn't satisfied, then certain provisions, or in the worst case, your entire agreement could be considered null and void under EU law. So getting this right isn't just a nice to have. This is just such an important point to keep an eye on during negotiations. Very often we can find ourselves arguing to get a non-compete in place, and it turns out that this clause really isn't allowed in several key jurisdictions, EU typically being a key jurisdiction in the in life sciences and the tech industries. And it's just, you know, you may have won the battle, but you've now lost the war. That's exactly it, Kristen. And Tona talked earlier about analyzing the competitive overlaps in the context of thinking about the exclusivity provisions and non-compete clauses. And that exercise is also highly relevant to thinking about governance provisions and managing information flows. So clearly both collaboration partners will want good oversight over the project, especially as you mentioned, given the sums of money involved. But at the same time, they do need to be mindful of the antitrust rules around information exchange. And European rules are particularly strict in that respect. So what does that mean in practice? Well, first, parties need to carefully monitor developments in their own portfolio and product pipeline to ensure that any regulatory risks arising down the line can be adequately dealt with. So, for example, making sure that firewalls can be put in place if that's necessary and that the right people with the right responsibilities are on shared collaboration committees. Second, it also means giving good guidance to people who are working on the day-to-day operation of the collaboration. So, Information exchange is necessary to make a collaboration work And it is permitted in the context of a genuinely pro-competitive collaboration. But the people working on the collaboration do need to know where the guardrails are. And so ideally, you would bake that into your committee structures and your reporting lines from the outset to make compliance easier during the lifetime of the agreement. In that vein, one other thing that should be thought about in the context of these licensing collaborations and may not be, and and quite frankly, it often should occur before outside counsel become involved, or at least when we typically become involved in these deals. But it's information sharing before the collaboration is in place. So very often these deals involve highly complicated technology. There's a lot of IP involved. The potential licensee needs to really understand and diligence the technology that they're either trying to license or acquire. And so that's going to require individuals who have really specific educational backgrounds, expertise, and everything else. And so that you don't inadvertently run afoul of some of the antitrust laws, you often need to put in place a clean team that can look at that. So, you know, if you're a a large biopharmaceutical company with a very expansive set of technologies that you're working on, you need to think really carefully about who you can assign to diligence any potentially uh, new technology that you might in license. And of course, usually the people who know the most or would be best suited to review that technology are the exact people who should not be reviewing it for antitrust purposes. But it's always something to keep in mind uh, that these clean teams really are very important to my understanding. Yeah, thank you, Kristen. And I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a really good practical point to remind listeners. So now we've talked about the filing assessment that needs to happen at the outset and also the sorts of contractual provisions and specific safeguards required throughout the lifetime of a collaboration. 
But what do parties need to think about when considering exit strategies? Jenny? Megan, it's it's a really good point. And I think it brings us actually right back to where we started. So it is trying to invest some time up front in trying to assess what the regulatory landscape and the filing requirements could look like upon exit. So looking at different exit strategies, you know, are you planning a sale of the exit at the end of the collaboration? Are you thinking about the exercise of certain option rights or a combination of the two? Are you thinking of taking the asset back? So a, a license back arrangement all those events and all those exit strategies could in themselves be notifiable events. And if they're happening 10 years from now, you want to at least have some sense of what the complexity would look like and whether it would be possible for you to exit in the way that commercially is the most attractive to you. Yes. In fact, this pipeline development and the implications on the antitrust analysis was the subject of a recent litigation matter in the U.S. involving BMS, Celgene, and Nimbus. The matter has since been settled, but the fact pattern is interesting for this discussion. In that case, Celgene entered into a collaboration agreement with Nimbus that contained an option for Celgene to purchase the Type 2 inhibitor program that they agreed to develop in collaboration with each other. Celgene was subsequently acquired by BMS. In the litigation, Nimbus alleged that BMS wouldn't be incentivized to develop its Type 2 asset, given its own pipeline, and therefore, BMS shouldn't be allowed to exercise the option that was once held by Celgene because it could be anti-competitive. The case was settled, but if BMS wouldn't have been able to exercise the option, that is, Nimbus won on its claim, that valuable asset, the option, would have been meaningless. Yeah, and we've seen similar issues crop up in Europe, Megan. Changes in collaboration partners' portfolios or activities over time can indeed complicate exits as well as future M&A deals. And an example that comes to mind here is the European Commission's review of the um, J&J Johnson & Johnson's acquisition of Actelion. In, in the context of that transaction, the Commission adopted a, a conservative or some, some would say aggressive approach in its review in the sense that it analyzed the activities of a minority investment partner of one of the two companies as part of the overall portfolio of the, the company and, uh, as a result, the, the overlap between the transacting parties. And this clearly shows that one needs to keep the overall company strategy in mind when entering into these kinds of agreements to avoid surprises, delays and complications in, in future acquisitions. Well, that seems like a great place to wrap this conversation up. Are there any final practical tips from, from anyone uh, on the call? Well, I think for my side, Megan, I would say, again, the key when entering into these types of transaction structures is to, to really assess the regulatory profile of your deal, both at the outset, so right now at the point of the negotiations, but also look into the future. So if filings aren't required today, how do you deal with the antitrust risk that Tona outlined earlier in our discussion? If you do need approvals in the future, whether that's for IP arrangements or whether it's for exercise of options, are you confident that you will be able to get them at that point in time? And how, you know, if you're thinking about a multi-product collaboration, how are you going to bring new assets into the collaboration in the future and make sure that all works from an antitrust perspective? Yeah, absolutely. I think from my perspective, I would just want to stress once again that collaboration agreements in whatever form or shape they need to be looked at closely to ensure that provisions are drafted in compliance with the relevant laws from the relevant uh, jurisdictions and will ultimately be enforceable. 
The drafters should ensure that mechanisms are in place to deal with both potential failures and future successes that may occur during the lifetime of the agreement. I think these are all messages for the deal lawyers listening on the call. Um, But I think for my fellow deal lawyers, the only thing I can add to that is it's really important for us to understand how the regulatory risk can impact the strategic rationale for the deal. We need to keep that in mind as we are negotiating these deals so that we can ensure that the deal documentation caters for any future uncertainty that's going to arise around the competitive landscape for the asset. Well, thank you so much to Tona, Jenny, and Kristen for joining me today in this discussion. We'll ask listeners to look out for our next episode, which will focus on data-specific considerations in tech and life sciences, deals, and strategic ventures. For now, that's all from here. Thanks.